So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. That is where we find ourselves over the last several weeks in our series through the book called Counterculture. Being a people of God that are different from the world, and we are set apart from the world, and we're called to be countercultural. And so we've been uh, studying this book the last couple of weeks and hopefully find it fruitful. And as I was thinking and praying and just uh, maybe observing uh, all that's going on and some things going on within our body, I would just give you a, a little reminder and a disclaimer that as we are seeking to become a more healthy church all the time, and especially as we're in a book like 1 Corinthians, where we've talked about divisions and pridefulness, and we'll talk more about that today. We want to be gospel-centered. Here's my, my warning or counsel to you. Don't be surprised as you journey through this book if conflict comes into your life. Uh, I, I know of many that are existing relationally, and I think what God does in that is he sovereignly ordains these things to sharpen us, to lead us to his word and hopefully grow in grace and wisdom. And so if you're experiencing relational conflict, I won't have you raise your hand because most of us would probably say, yeah, that's me right now. Don't be surprised because God is preparing and doing work. Amen? So with that, I want to read from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read th from verses 18 down through 31, a little bit longer text, but so, um, so important in what Paul is establishing here as he's written this letter to the church in Corinth about the gospel. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. With that, I want to pray, and I would ask you to pray for God to speak to you, that you would never boast on anything except for on the name of Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that is read, and I pray that it would be received by, by me, by all of us, that as Paul is writing here, he is reminding us of the power of the gospel, that you use the foolish and weak things by the world's standards to bring glory to your name. And Father, 
We pray that we would find our boast only in Christ. Father, I know we can be prideful people, and I pray that you would grab a hold of our hearts, grab a hold of my heart in a way that we would just elevate the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd speak now through your word, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in his name, and all God's people said. Last week, I asked this question as we talked about unity, as you see it on the screen. Will I, as I belong to a church body, look to bring unity and elevate the gospel of Jesus Christ, or look to bring division and elevate myself? I start there as a reminder, but also as a way to segue, Paul was reminding the church that they had to be unified in the gospel if they were to be credible to the world. If they were going to go out with the gospel and preach, the church had to look a certain way, and it was unified. And we look at his next words then about how pride and human wisdom are foolishness, and it actually takes away from the message of the cross. So that's where we'll start this morning. Uh, my... My younger brother, is, his name is Kent, and when he was younger, I remember one time in particular where he got in a lot of trouble. And my mom wasn't as much of a disciplinarian as my dad, but I remember this particular time, my mom put the smack down on him bad. My mom was a check writer. She wrote checks, and still to this day, she, she writes checks for everything. If you're a young person, a check is a piece of paper that you write a, a business name or, or somebody else that you want to pay them currency, and then you hand that to them, and then they give it to the bank, and the bank then pays them, uh, pays that business off cash. And so I know in a debit culture and an Apple Pay world, we don't understand, but my mom was an avid check writer. And so one day in particular, you know kids do dumb things. My brother, for whatever reason, he always saw my mom loves her checks. I don't know if he's mad at her or insane, whatever, but he decided that he would grab her checkbook and her box of checks, and he sat up in his room, and he started just writing on all these checks. And again, I can't even explain the gravity of the moment as we witness, like, oh, man, you're dead. Mom was going to kill you. And so he's writing on all these checks, all these things, and my mom found him, and when she did, something not from this earth happened <laughs> in my mom's being and she she spanked him a lot all her say my mom's checks were sacred now an interesting side note to this story my brother is actually my little brother is a financial planner or a financial manager with Allstate I don't know how this plays into the story um, but I don't know that anybody would have cashed those checks but all those checks were ruined and it got me thinking about this they were voided you see they could no longer pay any debt that's why my mom was so upset. These pieces of paper were useless now. And I think back then, checks were a little more expensive, but they could no longer pay a debt. That's what happens when a check is voided. And the same is true in what Paul is saying here. We start in verse 17 where we left off, just going back a verse. He said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied or voided of its power. That's where we left off in that as, as that when we preach the gospel as though man is able to save himself by working salvation, if you add anything to Jesus Christ as a Savior, we void the cross because it is only the, the only payment acceptable for our sin. And Paul is saying it's much like that. If you add anything to Jesus, Jesus plus anything actually voids what actually happened on the cross, 
when Jesus was the only payment for man and his sin against God. And it's the cross that Paul kind of narrows his focus in as he continues this letter. And specifically that the very word and act and meaning and outcome and substance of what happened on the cross is the most powerful and gloriously wise act that can only come from an almighty God. And yet, to a world of unbelieving people, the people that we see day in and day out, outside of our body here, it's foolishness. That's what Paul is saying. So if you are a Christ follower, and you follow Jesus, and you know what the cross is and its power, and you know what it is and what it means, you often think, why doesn't everybody else think that same way? I go and preach the gospel, or they look at my life and they say, you're a fool. This is a reminder that God designed it a certain way, and then that's expectant in the world. Paul is showing us something here. And so the easiest way that I can think to understand and help us understand this text is to break it up to four sections with this idea being the central idea that Jesus and the cross is actually true wisdom and power and the wisdom of the world is true foolishness and weakness. Now you might read that and say, well, I know that. But some of us don't live like that. Some of us are still after our own wisdom. Some of us are still pursuing our own philosophies. Some of us are still absorbed, if you will, by culture, which is exactly what the problem of the day was. And so what I'll do is I'll break this text up into four parts. The first one, 18 through 21, will be worldly foolishness. Paul's speaking about the influence of culture. The second is religious foolishness. People, and none of us are exempt from this list, by the way. People that are in religion and in the church, if you will, and yet they still don't understand the gospel. And then there's personal foolishness. Like, why didn't God make us this way or make me this way if he was wanting to have us spread the gospel through the world? And then gospel foolishness, understanding the heart and true meaning of the gospel. And I want to work through these four sections, and then after each one, give us some practical maybe warnings and applications for each. The first one being worldly foolishness. So let's jump into verse 18. Why would Paul address such an issue as he does here? For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He's reminding them the word of the cross is folly. The use of the Greek word there is Mariah, which actually not Mariah like that little adorable Mariah, but Moriah, which is actually moronic. It's moronic. It doesn't make any sense to a world that is perishing. See, Paul is addressing an obvious problem in culture. You have to understand the culture to which Paul was writing. It's a Greek philosophical culture where intellect was the thing. They held that as extreme. Intellectualism, philosophia or philosophy, the love of wisdom. That's the culture that existed when Paul is writing this lesson, this this letter in Corinth. Those people valued their own wisdom and intellect above any other thing. And many converts to Christ actually got saved and they came in with that factionalism. They brought that into the church. They still thought of themselves as some way as superior. They were saved and redeemed, but they brought this idea that somehow they added some value to what God was doing. And it was causing division, causing the gospel to not be superior and central anymore. And all the while, it was them who were acting foolishly. We have to think, how could they they have belonged that way? How could they have been redeemed by the grace of Christ and been influenced that way? Remember, 
They were saturated in culture as we are. Some of us in the church are confused because we are saturated still with cultural thought and idea. You see, the word of the cross being foolish is much worse than unbelievers just not understanding it. You have to understand what Paul is saying here. It's much worse than them just not understanding what happened at the cross. They actually thought the claim was ridiculous. That's what they thought. Why would God do it that way? They saw themselves intellectually superior, and it simply doesn't make any sense. Just like people who persecute you for your faith, it simply doesn't make any sense for someone to believe in and set their hope on a God who dies on a cross. It's a pretty silly way to save somebody. So for them, it's just intellectually moronic. And yet God is saying, here's what God has set up. He's chosen that way for his ultimate glory. Now, unfortunately, we know this. The cross today has become a pop culture symbol, right? However, Paul is stating clearly here, the cross itself creates two groups of people. There's no third group. It creates those who are perishing and those who, be, who are being saved. The unbeliever is perishing in foolishness because of the wisdom of man saying that the cross itself is foolish. And we see a similar view today. We see this. And we see that the believer here, and, and, and some of us can resonate with this thought, the believer here is seen as closed-minded, arrogant, and idiotic because of our faith, right? For believing that God in his sovereign rule sent his son Jesus to die to the cross for our sins. To the believer, the message of cross of the cross is an example of God's power to change the life of a sinner. But to those who don't understand, it's completely ridiculous. And I would say that our culture of tolerance, and I would put that in like kind of air quotes, if you will, some people for the most part will say, yeah, if you want to be a Christian, that's cool, whatever, that's your thing. But at the core of the world and what they think, they think, why would you give your life to that? I know you have friends and family who say that all the time, because I do. Why would you give your life to the message of foolishness? And so God is kind of like reminding us here how he's worked. And Paul continues on in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's quoting Isaiah 29, 14 there in this way. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Prophesied about this hundreds and hundreds of years before, and, and Paul brings back Isaiah for what God is doing, a reference to the prophetic word spoken that when the Messiah, Jesus, would come, the mystery of the gospel would be hidden from those who you think it would go to, the rabbis, Pharisees, and scribes, the religious folk. You see, their desire for the law and religion, it blinded them. It just blinded them and caused them to count the message of the cross foolishness. And these were the people that were waiting for the Messiah. And when he came and when he spoke and Jesus spoke crazy things, like good crazy things, I mean, but crazy to them, they just looked at him in their hearts and their eyes were blinded. They thought he was a fool. Why would God save and redeem in this way? Because they relied on worldly wisdom. You see, many in our world are searching for answers of life's, prob life's problems. And many of them come to us, don't they? They come to Christians. They're skeptical, but many search for life's pro answers to life's problems. And you, you often turn to philosophy for that, cultural wisdom. 
But a Christian has no use for human philosophy. Why? Because where it is right, human philosophy, I'm not dismissing it totally, but where it is right, it will agree with Scripture, so you don't need it. And where it is wrong, it will disagree with Scripture, and therefore it is misleading. Matthew Henry said it this way, the plain preaching of a crucified Jesus was more powerful than all the oratory and philosophy of the heathen world. He said, there is the answer to all of life's problems. And you know you live there. You live in a life where people are trying to, to, to not age, and they'll, they'll, they'll eat supplements, and they'll work on all these things and remove wrinkles because they'll live forever. And, and that's the problem. How can, we, how can we cure earthly bodies? Or how can we make more money? And all these things, and people are saying, that's, that'll fix my life. All the while, the message of the cross is the only thing. The only thing that will answer the problem that we have in sin itself. It gets us to think then, what are some of the things we turn towards in our age? Seeing similar problems or philosophies. Let me give you a couple. Our culture emphasizes, I talked about this weeks ago, we emphasize experience over logic. If you're a young person, that's what you're living in right now. Don't think for yourselves logically, just experience things. That's the version of truth. It's feelings over facts, not what happened here or what did Jesus do here or what do we see historically. It's like, well, how do you feel about it? How does that make you feel instead of facts? And it's group think consensus over truth, meaning that a bunch of people can determine what truth is. Instead, we create relative truth. Well, that's what this group thinks and that's what this group thinks. And all the while, we're saturated in this in culture. Then there's the prosperity gospel that God gives you all that you want all the funnel cakes you could ever eat, right? In health and wealth and wisdom. Or you just might not be doing Christianity right because you must not be performing well enough because God's not blessing you the way that he ought to be if you were doing it right. Or think about groups or churches that elevate social justice as a part of the gospel. Where you have to care more about good works and politics and social reform than preaching a crucified Christ and a need for people to repent of sin and turn towards Christ. Friends, government's not going to solve our problem. Like we learned this in Sunday school this morning, human leader, a good human leader isn't the answer. You need a different leader, right? And none of those things answer the problem. And Paul is aiming at this, teaching this. He says, don't be taken captive by these. Don't turn towards them. He writes again in Colossians 2 verse 8 this same morning, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And friends, you look at that verse and you and I have to be wise and discerning in how we think. See to it that no one takes me captive by all the human philosophies of government, of, of media, of Hollywood, of all of these things that would turn my mind towards, you know, maybe. And that's what Christianity is struggling through right now. You know, God's word does say this, but maybe he's not like as clear or hasn't been. And so maybe this could be true. And maybe we need to do this and not this. And you, you name it. And so Paul calls somewhat rhetorically, facetiously, if for the wise, in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is saying it that way. That God has 
made foolish the wisdom of the world. He's putting all those philosophies to rest. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, God did it a different way than everybody expected. And I believe he did it this way so he could get all the credit. You know, when you read this text, like, well, why did God choose? Couldn't he have used some pretty powerful people to bring? No, God did it this way so that no human could ever say they had anything to do with it. And this is the problem in the church. If wise people, you included, could clearly save and cleverly save themselves, there's no need for God. There's no need for worship. There's no need for Jesus. If you could do it your own way through your own intuition, there would be no need for it. But God is a different God. He demands all the glory. And in his most God-like, powerful way, he can do this most powerful thing in a way that no one else could. In fact, in a way that everyone would think is completely moronic, ridiculous. And it says actually in this verse, it pleased God to do it that way, that the world would never have done it to bring about salvation and redemption. It brought pleasure to the Father to do it in this most unique and humble way. And Paul's counsel was then for these new believers in Christ to give up human philosophies. It had no usefulness anymore. He says you only need the cross, which then our takeaway from this first foolishness that we could succumb to in, in this way is what cultural thing would God ask you today that you need to give up? a way that you've been thinking, a way that you've been thinking about, this is how I want to answer my life's problems or embedder my life in some way. What would he ask you to give up? What, it, what belief would it be in some ways that, that God would ask you? Would it be a, be a belief in, in that God would prosper you the way you desire? Would it be maybe your reliance on politics to save and redeem? Maybe he would say that. Maybe it's your belief that we can't really know the absolute truth and, and your loss and confidence of Scripture as God's final authoritative word. What would it be, what human philosophy would be that God would say, you need to give that up. Don't be held captive by that anymore. You need to be reminded of the cross, and that's your only hope and mission to preach that message in the world. I'd ask you to just pray about that and ask God if there's any worldly foolishness that you would need to surrender. Paul continues to the second group and he says this is religious foolishness in verse 22. And again, none of us are exempt from this. So, so for us to stop and hear, well, I'm not like these, just wait a second. It says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. You see, the Jews asked for signs because this is what they had seen in the past, right? They looked for miracles to confirm that what the prophet proclaimed was true. So they insisted that Jesus, when he walked, they insisted that he produce signs and miracles so that they could believe he was a Messiah. Well, what did Jesus do? He gave them that. He performed that, and yet they didn't believe. He executed, in fact, in great numbers. But they missed God in the miracles that he was offering and performing. And the Greeks did the same, right? They looked for wisdom on their own terms, the philosophy and religion of the age of what they desired. But God was not to be found in the wisdom of man. And so in their pursuit of culture, they looked to their own wisdom, but he wasn't to be found there. And here then, using the statement in verse 23, when he says, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That phrase, but we, Paul separates the believer from the Gentile philosophers and Jewish elite, clarifying here that the church, the true 
church, the understand the people that understand the gospel have been redeemed. We preach Christ crucified. And this preaching, this message becomes a stumbling block to the Jews because they expected what? For Jesus to come as the mighty conqueror. They expected their own friends, listen, like some of us may, you expect your Messiah in the way that you think he should fit in your box. That's what they expected. Jesus, however, know, knowing we know this, we, we talk about this at Christmas time a lot, came to the earth in this most humble, meek, lowly, impoverished way, not seeking the glory of this world, right? Satan tempted him, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. That was a temptation. And Jesus combated that with the word of God. Because Christ did not come on their terms, they were offended by him. Think about our world right now and think about you. Sometimes we are offended by Jesus because he doesn't work for us, because he doesn't come on our terms. And you have to be careful not to become like the Jews and expect God to show up on your own terms, but rather expect God to do what is according to his will. Let me say that one more time. We have to be careful not to become like the Jews and expect God to show up on our own terms, but rather expect him to do what is according to his will in our lives. You see, for the Gentiles, the message of Christ crucified was foolishness because they could not believe that the fulfillment of life would come through a, a man crucified in Judea. That didn't even make any sense to them. But the matter and manner of the preaching were in opposition to every notion the Gentiles possessed of what was dignified and philosophic. Sometimes we think this way too. But Paul continues in verse 24, but to those who are called... We talked about calling in the first chapter, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Note here that it is God's calling again, not man's. Paul is distinguishing that again for the fourth time the word is used now. He says this is about the calling that God has initiated in your life. And for those whom God has called, the Jews and Gentiles, he puts them back together, seeing that the Jews and Gentiles aren't the enemies here. Those were people that were brought in to the church. They were converted. And he brings them back and says, for those called, the Jews and Gentiles alike, even ground there, Christ was both the power and wisdom of God. Remember, Jews demanded signs, Greeks searched for wisdom, and he satisfied the Jews by his power and the Gentiles by their wisdom. Not in the way they thought, but in the way that God planned. God is the only thing, or being, I should say, that could quench the void of eternity in the hearts of men. And when he calls, he satisfies every need that you ever longed for. Now, verse 25 comes along. It can be mis misunderstood. This would be a verse that if you pulled out of context, it'd be dangerous. It says, For the foolish of foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Of course, we know that God isn't foolish or weak. What is Paul saying here? He's meaning that the things of God which seem to men as foolishness are infinitely beyond the highest degree of human wisdom. Like, even the things that we think, like, God, I just, I wouldn't do it that way. Because, you know, we do that in our lives, right? Like, God, I, I, would, I would go about, if you need my help, let me know. I would do it this way if I was writing my story. I, I would do it this way. Even those things that we think, oh, God, I think you missed an opportunity there. Infinitely beyond the degree, highest degree of human wisdom. Likewise, the works of God, which appear to a natural man as weak often, right, surpass all the efforts of human power. The means through which God has appointed salvation of men are so wisely arranged and so inexplicably powerful that all who experience him are forever changed. Who get that? 
when you know that. And so what can we learn from keeping away from religious foolishness? What's a takeaway? I think we can all be religious and legalistic in our ways. You see, it's easy, I think. Or maybe I'll ask it this way. Is it easy for someone who is called according to his purpose, someone who's really saved, those who are justified to be prideful? Of course it is. I think we can all bring pridefulness into the church in our own ways. You see, these people had trusted Christ and recognized their redemption had come by grace through the cross, but they wanted to add human wisdom. And we do that in the church sometimes, and we must not do that. We come up with these ways to add human wisdom to our salvation, if you will, or to anything else. And nothing can be added to the grace of Christ. You have to be on guard and you have to actually be aware of your pridefulness to keep this attitude away from your, your spirit, this fleshly attitude. Always consider yourself a fool for Christ. We must always consider ourselves that. When we think, and, and you see this develop in the church, when we think we have all the answers and we get pride developed, we start to form this religiosity about us. That's what Paul is saying. Don't do that. At your best, is it? It's kind of reassuring. At your best and highest moment of intellect, you're a fool. Like you brought low, right? And that's what God desires from us. Not that he can't use our gifts and wisdom in those kind of things, but he says, like, it separates us from God, doesn't it? Which leads to the third one, personal foolishness, because we have a problem with that. Some of us, I would say most of us, think that we are weak by the world's standards. And you know what? I believe that to be true. People that God redeems are often that way, weak and cast outs by the world's standards. For those of you that were feeling pretty good about yourself today, welcome to Real Hope. <laughs> and that's just the way God planned it. Again, I look at this text as kind of a reminder. Let me just read these verses here. Especially, especially for you young people who are trying to navigate following Jesus in a world that just hates Christians, especially for you young people, listen to this. For, considering, for consider your calling, brothers, I'll add sisters, young people. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. That's the thing we want, right? Not many were powerful. That's the thing men seeks, right, power? Not many were of noble birth. I don't know of any princes or sheiks in this crowd anyway. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you're feeling pretty low about yourself in terms of not connecting with the rest of the world, I think you're in better company with the church. I'm not saying you should be in depression about that, but if you're seeing, feeling like you don't fit in with the world, I think you're doing the right thing and living the right way. Paul says, consider your calling. What's the calling? The blessed state of grace to which God has called you. And you have to examine that call against the message of the Christ, of cross, right? God has chosen to use sinful men to preach the message of the cross. As a believer, God has chosen you. He has chosen me, not only because of his grace and goodness, but because you are to preach the message. He chose you, the fool, right? What a unique, incredible opportunity. We are the foolish things that God has chosen. How many of us wake up in the morning and say, thank God I'm a total fool? You're not going to get that in your self-help books, right? 
And Paul, Paul's writing, you are the lowly despised things of the world that God has redeemed. You're whom he chose. Just think of what God took us from. You who were dead in trespasses and sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made you alive in Christ. This was done through Christ, not us. And friends, what's our takeaway from this? Personal foolishness? I got news for you. True believers aren't ever going to fit in the cool kids of the world club. I don't know, if you're a young person and that's your aim, I want to be with the cool kids. That was, that was probably my aim, even as a kid who grew up in the church. And as we get, we don't really ever grow out of that, do we? As adults, I just want to be with the cool kids, accepted. I got news for you. We're not as Christ followers. We're a square peg in a round hole in the world. We're countercultural. We weren't meant for this world. And I believe this passage is here a reminder. It's saying many things, but it helps us to remind or be reminded of God's goodness and faithfulness that when we doubt or when we are persecuted, as many of us will be this week for our faith and our belief, it's a way of reminder that those and only those who are born again by the Spirit would understand these two things. How inferior and small our wisdom and place is and how superior and grand our God is. When you go out in the world and you talk to coworkers and you sit at the lunch where I don't, I, I have a small lunch table here. I don't know where you guys sit. But when you interact with coworkers and discussions come up and you see the world a different way because you're trying to honor Christ and they look at you as a fool, remember your place. That God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the foolish way that no man. And remember what he's called you to. You're inferior and you're small. God is superior and grand. And don't be discouraged when the world doesn't get it. Paul is saying the world doesn't get it. It only will be by God if they get it. He has to open their eyes. You who sit there today, who preach the message of the gospel to your mother or your father or your daughter or son or brother or sister and constantly, or friend or neighbor, and they constantly just don't get it, are blinded. And it is un, isn't until God would open their eyes to the wisdom of himself and the power of himself that they'll get it. Paul's not saying stop preaching because they just don't get it. He's saying preach all the more that God would move in their heart the way that he desires. And so pray that God would use you as hard as it is. Say, God, I, don't, I ought to seek the things, not of this world, but the, the, that I should set my mind on things above and pray that God would use you to preach the foolish message of the gospel to the world. And by foolish, I mean, of course, in context of what we're talking about, because finally Paul concludes this section by reminding the church of the true gospel, that it's not foolishness at all, and that looking to any other thing than the power of God is foolishness, gospel foolishness. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here Paul reminding us that because of God, they are found in Christ. By and through Jesus Christ came all the blessings of the gospel which are imparted to us. And these blessings are summed up here. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness knowing that only Christ himself was able to perfectly keep the law that we need to be righteous before God in order to have us be reconciled to him. And only Christ is that righteous, that righteous intermediary, if you will, 
to atone for that. We are being sanctified and we are being purchased by his blood. We are redeemed and justified before God through the remission of our sins, which the law couldn't provide. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are as believers being sanctified or being made holy, set apart, becoming more like Christ daily until the day of our eternal salvation is actually realized. You and I in Christ are becoming more like Christ each day. Think about that. Because of the promise, the gift of salvation, you and I are becoming more and more like Jesus through all the struggles, through all the pain, through all the sufferings, through all the questions, through all the ways people persecute, through all the trials you endure, you are becoming more and more like Jesus. Remember that. Even and especially when you feel lonely in a world that does not believe. Because we have confidence that Christ will bring us home. Amen? And not on our own, which is why we started and we sang about this. Because Jeremiah, Paul concludes this section by re-quoting Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 in verse 31, which says, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord Reminding us again that all of the good and all of everything we could ever have is from God. Let him that has either wisdom or strength or riches or pardon or holiness or any other blessing, whether temporal or spiritual, acknowledge that he had nothing before God's blessing. And he requotes John, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Could that be said of you? Maybe I've said this before, and my kids know this, and I've probably shared it before, but I was written these two verses on my graduation card from my youth pastor. You see, I was a pretty arrogant. Some of you are going, I could see that. I was. I was a pretty arrogant, full of myself, teenage kid. And, and I just, even though, even though I grew up in a Christian home, I think my human philosophy was, was to just be the best in the room. And that was my head. It was bigger than, than anyone else's, I thought. And my youth pastor wrote this verse, and I remember opening up the graduation card. You know, sometimes in, sometimes in memory, like you can go back and you know exactly where you are. I remember I was between the threshold of our living room and kitchen, and I was just opening up cards, and then I read this verse, and I like, time stood still. Like, what is he, and it's as if God just got a hold of my heart in that moment at 18 years old and said, this must be true of you. If God would ever, if he would ever use me in the way that, that I ought to be used for his glory, let me not boast of, any, of anything except for the cross of Christ. Only our boast can come in Christ. Only your boast. Jesus and the cross is true wisdom and power, and the wisdom of the world is true foolishness and weakness. And friends, maybe some of you are here today and you're still trying to live off of voided checks. I don't know your story, but maybe your life, you're still trying to live off of a voided check and pay a debt that you cannot pay. Maybe some of you think that you can pay your own debt of sin. You can cancel that for good works or whatever. For those of you who might think that, that good, doing good on your own you can earn your way into heaven that being here at Real Hope on Sunday after Sunday is enough for God. Paul reminds us that our only boast will be in the Lord at the end of days. And what have you done with him? Nothing else will save. You may sit here and even 
think it's foolish, but believe me when I say, it is the power of God to reconcile and redeem man. Only Christ's work, his finished work on the cross can pay a debt that is owed to God from our sin. And today is a day that you can trust him in faith and have forgiveness of sin. To not live adding anything to the gospel, to not try to pay any debt that we could not pay on our own, but just to sit just marveled in the lavish grace of Christ. May our only boast be in life that I will boast in the Lord my God. Let us pray. Um, I want to leave you with this from Galatians 2. Paul wrote this as well, said this about himself. I pray that this is our attitude as we leave this place today. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is our calling. That is our attitude by which we go out. We've been crucified by Christ, and we live a life of faith in the one who gave himself for us. Amen. Have a blessed day. Go in peace. You are sent.